Welcome everyone to another episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Semino, and with me, as sometimes, is a very special guest. You may know this person from previous episodes of the In Real Deep Podcast, specifically, not even specifically, he's only been on two, but they are two well-regarded ones, they are two of our finest episodes, and we are very happy to have him back in the middle of a global pandemic to talk to him once more. He was on the Starsborn episode, he was on the Armageddon episode, and here he is again, it's our friend Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Steve, and... May Shai Halud bless you, and I swear to you by the end of this podcast, your water will be my water. <laughs> that was either total gibberish to you, or you know what you're getting into by listening to this episode. He was, of course, quoting from Dune, and we are here to talk about Dune. Dune as an entity, specifically in the 1984 movie, but also just the concept in general. Chris is a huge Dune fan. He, it was his idea in a lot of ways for me to start reading it. It was his idea for us to watch it together. And it was his idea to come on and talk about it. And given that, you know, all things being equal and the world returning to normal, there will be another Dune movie coming out in a few months. We thought it was a great idea to revisit the 84 Dune, the David Lynch Dune, and talk about it and just really get a sense of what this movie is. It's an off-maligned movie, and I had never seen it, and I was very intrigued to watch it, and it was not very good. <laughs> No, it's it's such an interesting uh, dynamic that you have between this novel, which for many people is the greatest science fiction novel series ever written, and some may argue one of the greatest novels, American novels ever written, even if you remove the science fiction out of it. And then on the other side, you have this director who's very celebrated in American film history, uh, who just really missed the point of this this movie. Uh, or excuse me, of the book as he made this movie. Uh, but I think there's some really interesting um, things in the David Lynch movie that worked. And I think there are some interesting behind-the-scenes uh, rumors uh, as to some of the failures of this movie. And uh, a lot of those are underscored by the fact that David Lynch actually disowned uh, a lot of the, the cuts of this movie that uh, I believe it was Paramount or MG, one of those two that the, the studio that produced it put out. And so it's fair to say that David Lynch uh, himself was very unsatisfied with the product. Yep, absolutely. And before we get too into that, Chris, I mentioned already that you are a Dune super fan. Uh, You have read these books many times. I believe you just powered through the book once again before (laughs) recording this. So you are incredibly fresh. Give us a little backstory. When did you first come upon this series? When did you see the movie? Just what is your history with the Dune franchise as a whole? Sure. So as with a lot of the the literature I've read in my life, it comes from my parents. My parents are big readers and my mom and my dad both love the novel Dune. And I actually saw, if I remember this right, I saw this movie as a kid before I actually read the book. And to a kid, this movie is just, you know, dudes fist fighting and big worms and knives and blood, et cetera. And so I kind of had, I have a soft spot in my heart for this movie because the first time I saw it, it was everything I needed it to be. Uh, But I believe the first time I read the novel was in college. And since then I've read the entire series. Um, Even the Kevin Jan, or excuse me, the um, uh, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson uh, books, both prequels and sequels. Now, I, we don't have to go into all the details of the entire world of Dune in this podcast, but a brief synopsis is 
that the first book, Dune, is certainly the most celebrated. Um, it is absolutely the best written, in my opinion. Uh, but the universe does expand uh, as the six books uh, written by uh, Frank Herbert are all spelled out. And it's interesting because the themes from the initial book grow like a tree. Um, in the initial book, Dune, it's a masterpiece of political intrigue, of environmental themes, of technology, of human capacity, of society and the fragility of society, of opulence versus hardship and what opulence and hardship do to a people. It is a gross indictment on religion. Um, but above all, and I've read interviews with Frank Herbert about this, it is about the danger of a hero or a charismatic leader and the cost of manipulation. Um, I think those are the themes that stand out most to me in the book. And so just to give a brief synopsis of what these books are about, uh, it follows the story of Paul Atreides. Paul Atreides is the son of a duke, uh, a duke that rules a planet called Caladan. Um, they exist in a universe that has an emperor called the Padishah Emperor, uh, known as the Emperor of the, of the Known Universe. And they are part of a congress called the Landsrad. And the Landsrad are, is made up of all of the great houses. So this is very much a feudal system. So when we talk about a planet, that planet is typically ruled by a family in a feudal way. And all of these families exist in this congress called the Landsrad. The Atreides' arch enemy is the Harkonnens, uh, who also rule the planet of Giddy, uh, Giddy Prime and also have a fiefdom over the planet Dune. And we'll get into what Dune is in just a moment. So the story kicks off essentially with um, the Atreides having been granted a fiefdom over the planet Arrakis or Dune. Now, maybe the most important part of this story is the spice. Dune is the only planet in the known universe that has the spice. And to make a comparison, spice is essentially petroleum and cocaine mixed into one. That's how important it is to the entire universe. It extends life. It cures disease. It allows expanded mental and physical abilities. Um, and so when you have one planet distributing the spice, uh, that planet becomes extraordinarily important. And it's important to also note that the spice is addictive. And if you stop taking the spice, you will have a slow death. There are different characters and different organizations throughout this universe that are very complex, but just the main players are the Bene Gesserit, which is a group of people who have mastered uh, essentially biophysics and also mastered the art of politics. And they have been performing a genetic experiment through thousands of years to try to create a super being they call the Kwisatz Haderach. There's the Spacing Guild, which are uh, what were once humans that took high doses of spice to be able to have the scientific and mathematical capability to tr uh, fold space-time and allow for interstellar travel. And finally, you have what's called the Chome Company. And the Chome Company is essentially Google, Amazon, Apple, every big tech firm you can think wrapped into one. The Chome Company has a monopoly on almost all commerce throughout the entire universe, and they're closely allied with the Spacing Guild. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is the universe we walk into as we open the book. 
And that's a lot. <laughs> it's you know that's why the the version of the book I have is about 800 pages. And depending on text size and you know page size, it's it's a long ass book. No matter how you cut it, it's it's huge. And it's a lot of information to put into one movie. And there's a reason that the Dennis Villeneuve Dune that is coming out in a few months is going to have the first book and tell or at least tell a a healthy chunk but certainly not the whole thing because it's just too much and one of the issues that i think this dune movie does is just try and mush it all into one and that's complicated like it's not the first movie to try and tell a massive overarching story even if it's just a one book story in one movie but you know for all of david lynch's skills as a filmmaker which are ample yeah, depending on your viewpoints, he's not. He certainly has an acquired taste in a lot of ways, but he's a very talented, evocative, you know, loves imagery, loves symbolism, loves shocking images. Like, just does loves a lot of has, – has mastered a lot of elements of filmmaking. I don't think one of his skill sets is adaptation. I don't think one of his skill sets is supposedly is adapting Dune. Like, regardless of what happened behind the scenes, it's just – it's biting off more than he can chew. And trying to fit all those things you just described in one movie – is very complicated, and he, he gives it the college try, and he goes for it, but there's just a lot of it that falls flat, and especially if you read the book and then watch the movie, it's really hard to watch it and not be like, what, like, this is how they're doing it this way, or this is how, like, it's just, I think the choices they make from a storytelling perspective do not capture the grandioseness and the importance and the value of all the things you just described. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, the the book itself is a very disciplined book. You can tell by the way it's written. Uh, and the story requires a lot of discipline to understand. I've read that book now four times uh, in my lifetime. And each time I find something new in there that, that is, um, that's captivating to me. And I think it was going to take a storyteller that has a bit more discipline to tell this story rather than David Lynch. Not to say that... He is a filmmaker is undisciplined, uh, but one has to be disciplined to this story to tell it right. And as you mentioned, I don't think that is something that uh, David Lynch is predisposed to do. And, and we'll get into what he does right, because it's not a disaster by any means. And I can see why it is sort of gotten sort of a cult, you know, fanaticism behind it. And I can see why even some Lynch fans or just science fiction fans in general see a lot of elements to it that they that they find valuable. But I think one thing that it does horribly, and you sum this up as, you know, when, I, when you and I had our conversation after I finished the book, I, one of the first things we talked about was, is Paul the main character? Is he a hero? And I thought... You know, and, and you have read the books that come after this one. You've obviously read interviews with Frank Herbert. Like you said, you've you've delved into this lore. You know, he you, it becomes very explicit later on that he's not the hero he's made out to be. But I thought, even in my first reading of the book, that that was pretty clear. Like it's it's just it's 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 a, it's a there's there's elements of revenge to it. There's elements of you know the classic science or classic storytelling trope of just you know a little person of some you know some stature, literal literally little or just little in the grand scheme of things, rising up and taking on an empire. There's like, some of that is there for sure, but there's also a lot of buying into your own legend and uh, being tempted by power and, you know, adapting to the system rather than overthrowing it. Like, this is all pretty explicitly there. And in the Lynch movie, you know, I don't know whether this was a studio choice or, or why this came out, but the end of this movie is 
very is incredibly heroic and purely good versus evil and it really it, it, the the nuance that that nuance element of the book is totally gone and i think that's it's sort of inexcusable from the start like it it cannot be that great just on its head just cuz it misses that and and you know disregards that so explicitly yeah i think this is and i guess we're going to get right into this but this is probably my biggest issue with the movie is that it treats Paul Atreides as a messiah figure. And when I say messiah figure, I mean that he is imbued with supernatural powers. Like at the end, he makes it rain on Dune. Now, anybody who's read the book would know uh, water actually kills sandworms. And so if it actually did rain on Dune, it would kill all the sandworms and destroy all the spice. So that, to me, also showed that they really didn't read the source materials (laughs) well enough. But additionally, one of Frank Herbert's most valued messages in this story, as I mentioned, was the danger of a charismatic leader, the danger of a messiah, the danger of a a quote-unquote hero. And it's interesting that he named the direct sequel to the the novel Dune Messiah, and that was not a compliment. Uh, Calling him a messiah, in Frank Herbert's view, was actually an insult, and it was actually a warning to, to, to the character of Paul Atreides and those that followed him. So one of the things that stands out in the book is that Paul Atreides is, in fact, not a messiah. He was deliberately created by humans. He was trained since he was a young boy uh, in fighting uh, techniques. He was made a mentat, which, without going too deep into it, um, he was trained to be a a human computer, for lack of a better term, with, uh, with a lot of mental capabilities that most humans don't have. He was also trained by his mother in the ways of the Bene Gesserit, which, again, have um, specialized in biophysics and muscle control, nerve control. And then finally, uh, one of the things that stands out in the book that they really didn't get across well in the movie, when, and we'll talk about the Fremen in just a minute, but when he arrives on Dune um, and he, his father is overthrown and he's cast out into the desert as an exile, he is eventually accepted by the Fremen as again a messiah figure now in the book they take painstaking uh detail to show that this was set up the bene Gesserit planted people within the, the fremen generations upon generations ago and very deliberately placed into the religion of the fremen um the idea of the lizan al-gaib which is a messiah And so when he arrives, he is simply fulfilling a prophecy that was deliberately put in place by the Bene Gesserit. He was fulfilling a plan. The Fremen were taken advantage of by Paul. He is not a messiah. He is actually, quite frankly, a deceiver. And he is cashing in on a plan that was put forth not by him, but by a group that wished to control him generations ago. So, again, I I would... When Steve says uh, you see him as a hero, I can't think of a trope that uh, Frank Herbert would have disliked more than for somebody to walk away from the experience of either watching a movie about Dune or reading the first couple books in the Dune series and seeing Paul Atreides as a hero. Yeah, it's it's a real like I understand that things will be lost in translation, you know. Like, and I think most I know some authors get really torn up by by seeing their works sort of desecrated, for lack of a better term, in 
in you know turn in the movie form but i also think some understand that there's just it's just not the medium that they choose to work in and it's you know there's a lot of masters in the film world and so therefore you have to give some things up and some things are going to be simplified some some things will be left behind but did, it's uh, the the execution in the dune movie is almost as frustrating because like you said that final scene where well, i remember so you and i we, we should share this, you and i watched this movie together in quarantine we we called each other and put our phones on speaker and mute alternatingly for two hours and then would unmute to have a conversation and then would mute again and we would resume the movie so we we sort of dual watched this from afar and you warned me as we got to the end you said this scene's terrible it's the worst part of the movie and i knew it was coming from reading the book but it's just again the the the, just the it's it's almost embarrassing how clear and clean they make it like we can talk about the harkonnens and how villainous they make them to it which is also very detrimental to the broader story but just having Paul win and then that essentially like there there were always rumors that this was supposed to be a part of a three part series. This was supposed to be you know Virginia Madsen who's in the movie said that she thought they were going to make Star Wars for grown ups. So it seems like they had an idea at a certain point to make a larger story. But if you watch this cut of the movie, the theatrical cut, it. It's, it's like it's just like it's just like all of a sudden it just ends and it's like the movie's over they won and there's no it's like what even comes next like it's just it's so unclear what what more would even happen like they ignore the stuff with the fremen they ignore the broader idea of paul being you know is he a good guy is he a bad guy is this good that he's this messiah character none of that is there like that's the crux of the larger story as i understand it is those unanswered questions after dune to just wrap it up with some rain and everybody yeah yay we won it's just it's just I, I, I can't imagine that's what David Lynch would want, and I also, but I can't imagine why anyone would want that. Even in the, you know, even in a simpler time of filmmaking, it just removes all ambiguity and all uncertainty, and there's nothing to even do next. You know, it's just over, <laughs> and, and I'm just not sure. It's just, it, it, it's just, it's very. It, I think, I think even if I had not read the book and I just seen the movie, I still would say this is very, you know, nicely, neatly wrapped up and sort of embarrassingly simplistic and does not seem like the the sort of thing that has inspired people for whatever it was 60 years as a sci-fi classic yeah and this is probably the right time to kind of take a minute to say what the fremen are because i think in addition to paul atreides being made a, a messiah figure or a deity in the movie the next biggest failure of lynch's movie is the way that the fremen are portrayed so what the fremen are is a group of uh, it's a civilization living on Arrakis or, or the planet Dune uh, that over hundreds and thousands of years have been living in deep hardship and the planet is almost devoid of water. And so water has become the highest currency to this group of people. Now, over thousands of years, they have become sharpened into a very disciplined, a very savvy, a very intelligent people that have a code, uh, especially spelled out in the book, that is actually quite admirable. There is little to no lying amongst those people. Everyone thinks about the tribe above the individual. And everything that they do is about water. And the overall, and to kind of sum up their civilization in a couple sentences, their overall goal is to make Dune a paradise one day. Uh, To uh, hoard enough water uh, to seed uh, what Liet Kynes in the book describes as 3% of the planet Um, If they can control 3% of the planet, they can turn it into a a water-filled paradise. Um, Unfortunately, this movie 
makes them out to be what the Bedouin uh, were in T.E. Lawrence's story of um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. So I can't I can't claim to have uh, thought of this this analogy myself. I got this out of a, a New Yorker article I read about the the movie, but essentially the movie makes makes the story to be that of Lawrence of Arabia, where you have the better educated, the the whiter um, Paul Atreides show up to these desert people who are undisciplined um, and who lack organization or lack a leader. And he gives them that organization and allows them to defeat the Turks, um, the evil Turks. That but, is but essentially even Lawrence of Arabia went a different way by the end. <laughs> you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. There was nuance to Lawrence of yes. Arabia at the end as well. That that was completely lacking in this movie Dune. Yes, they. You're totally right, and I thought of that too because you were the first one to show me Lawrence of Arabia, and that was a great film. And there's, I was thinking a few nights ago about the parallels between that story and this story. But again, that's a classic for a reason because that <laughs> though though that is not immaculate in the way it handles race relations and you know and the like it still very clearly implies at a certain point that this man is in over his head and believes his own story and like all these other things that we've come to expect from these types of tales but this one doesn't even bother to to go there and again it doesn't even set up future movies of this same vein to go that route which to me is you know a big a big black eye on the film and that it doesn't it just it doesn't seem concerned about what comes next it just seems to be happy to be wrapping itself up yeah, and it may be a more concise way for me to explain the difference in the way the Fremen are portrayed in the book and the movie is that in the movie, the Fremen are portrayed as this fully oppressed people that have little to no leadership, little to no plan, and uh, they need a savior to come free them from the oppression they're under from the Harkonnens. The book is very explicit. It is the Fremen who are in control of Arrakis. It is the Fremen who have generations-long plans going and being currently played out. The only reason they continue to exist in what appears to be an oppressed manner is because they choose to. They don't want to be discovered. They don't want people to know the plans that they're carrying out, and they are simply biding their time until they can enact the ecological changes that they want. They suffer the existence of the Harkonnens and the Imperium uh, and the exporting of spice so that they can one day turn their planet into the paradise uh, that they desire. But the Fremen are a people that think long term. They're okay with them, you know, the ones existing in this time of this novel, not seeing Arrakis become the paradise that it once will. And so the, that's one of the best parts of this book is the moment you realize, oh, wait, it's the Fremen who are in charge of Arrakis. And an interesting quote, maybe one of the best quotes in the entire book of and best uh, moments of foreshadowing is uh, one of the characters that's completely glossed over is Kynes. Now he's played by Max von Sydow in the movie and he's a throwaway character. He maybe gets what four minutes of screen time in the book. Kynes is also his full name is Liet Kynes. He's the actual leader of the entire Fremen. He is the, the head boss Fremen. And as he's dying in the book, spoiler alert, one of his final thoughts is the worst thing that could happen to the Fremen people is for a hero to arrive because he's aware of how special these Fremen are. I think those were like his father's are. dying words or something like that, right? Like his father yes, imparted precisely. that wisdom on him. 
that the worst thing that could happen to their plan and to the people of, of Arrakis, the Fremen, is for a hero to arrive. Uh, because he knew that the Fremen were so highly trained, they were such great fire, fighters, they, they lived such disciplined lives, they could be turned into such fanatical people because of that discipline, uh, that if someone came along and harnessed the power of the Fremen, they would be unstoppable and they would become a tyrant, which is precisely what happens. Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, we can beat the horse to death. Like, they do not... All those depictions of Paul and the Fremen are lack, again, every, every every bit of nuance that they have in the book. But let's... let's no, talk. no, but it, I, I, do, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but I do think those two points are... I think it's important we spent time on those two points because they are the biggest failure of this movie. It is the depiction of Paul Atreides as a messiah or a deity... And it is the failure to flesh out the nuances of the Fremen culture. Um, missing those two points, in my opinion, means you missed that entire book. <laughs> I like you, you seem to take it as a personal affront that they did not <laughs> depict them in the way you'd like. You're totally right. I disagree zero percent, but I just like that you're so impassioned. About what was, what was a, a horrible creative choice, but a creative choice nonetheless to streamline it to a to an embarrassing degree. But you know, but but in on par with how a lot of adaptations are done, you know. No, but I, I, I mean, we could, we we could have a six hour podcast about all the little things I'm we sure disliked about to, the way too. the movie was made. I would love to. Yes, I would love to. Our fans would probably not put a count on David Lynch. <laughs> but I do think for anybody interested in watching the movie or reading the book. Those are the two parts that are most egregious uh, that that do have to be ta- talked about at length in, yes. in terms of the failure of the movie. <laughs> but it's also it's funny. I would I'd be curious to know because David Lynch does not strike me as a man who wants to simplify a complex tale into a tale of Lawrence of Arabia. I, he doesn't strike me as that type of man. And so I'm very curious as to what pressure he got, and maybe this played into the reason he disowned this movie. Uh, maybe he was pressured to turn this story instead of being a tale of the rise of a uh, uh, the rise of a tyrant in essentially in Paul Atreides. They told him he must become this deity. It must be a happy ending. He must be the good guy defeating the bad guy at the end. And I'd be very curious to hear from David Lynch, and I'm sure he's listening to this podcast and will be <laughs> calling one of us any moment. Uh, but I'd be curious to know if that's one of the reasons he disowned the final cut of this movie. Yep, I think it's my, my total, you know, as, as a person who's seen other Lynch movies and, you know, has done a little bit of research on this, I'm sure, as you, like you said, you have as well. My guess would be a twofold thing. I think I'm sure he was under really dumb studio pressure to make a movie that would make a lot of money and be successful. And for a lot of not great reasons, people seem to think that simplifying and, and making things more straightforward makes things more appealing to the masses, where I, as is sometimes the case, but also people, you know, though people are very stupid people do can engage with a complicated story that is not the end of the world for many people but i also you know to 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 besmirch lynch slightly even though i like him very much i just think this is not his type of story you know i think it's just given everything he made afterwards the scale is so much different it is very much even like twin peaks is is a very character driven story you know like it's about a town but it's about this it's not on the scale of dune it's not overarching it's not this large and it has themes but those themes are largely hidden under a lot of like like i said about the symbolism and weirdness and confusion and really just like driven by fun unique characters making you know saying and doing awkward uncertain 
confusing things. And I just think this just this feels like such a uh, tug of war between, like like you said, the studio and also Lynch's and some of Lynch's sensibilities are in there. But I I I, I suspect it, you know at a certain point he might have realized, well, oh, this isn't like my cup of tea. You know, <laughs> this isn't the movie I should have signed on for because I'm not this kind of guy. Like I can't take direction, and also I you know that maybe I should drop back into telling different sorts of stories because I can't really tell these very well. No, and you know, again, I mentioned in in the beginning of the podcast that this story takes discipline to tell. I think one of the mistakes people make, especially if you just watched a movie, you haven't read the book, is that there's something fantastical about all of this. That there's some superpower that Paul Atreides has, like the Force for for Luke Skywalker, something like that. But when you read the books, you see that this story and all of the you know quote unquote superpowers that the different uh, people in the story have are very much rooted in science. There is a hard uh, background of science underneath all of these special powers. And I think when you read the book, it robs away any sense of supernaturalness uh, to any of these characters that are played out in the movie. And so when you, when you watch the movie and you see that they're taking what we can only interpret as shortcuts uh, and cheap shortcuts at that with these characters to say, oh, no, no, ignore the uh, pages and pages of scientific uh, theory and detail that Frank Herbert took to explain why the Bene Gesserit have the powers that they have or why Paul Atreides has the power of prescience or how the guild navigators can actually fold space-time with the assistance of the spice. Ignore all that. It's just the force. Yep. You know, it's just superpowers. <laughs> yeah. And and when, when you go down that route, you, you ignore all of the discipline it took to write the story. And that, unfortunately, is where I think David Lynch, as we mentioned earlier, this just was not going to be a good project for him, a project that required him to be disciplined to something he himself did not create. Yep. I think that's. I think there's a, certainly an element of truth that we may never know exactly how much truth, but it feels very, very true. Let's talk about another element of it, the movie that, it, well, again, we're going to get into some good stuff because it's not all bad, but I think the casting is a fascinating thing to discuss as well because this cast is not bad like if you look at the names Kyle McLaughlin Virginia Madsen um Patrick Stewart Max von Sydow Dean Stockwell a lot of people that you know became fell into the David Lynch oeuvre and became people he turned to over against uh, also Everett McGill is Stilgar Jack Nance is another one of the Harkonnen folk like there are some Lynch uh, full-timers there's some People like Patrick Stewart, where you're like, Patrick Stewart's in a David Lynch movie? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> like, when he came on screen, I did not expect that to happen. But, you know, this sort of, uh, to what we were talking about, this is, this is cast like it's an ensemble, and it is, you know, with a lot of different people, but you cast all these nice and wonderful actors and actresses and they get nothing to do. Like Virginia Madsen has nothing to do. Patrick Stewart has barely anything to do. The guy they cast as Duncan Idaho, Richard Jordan has nothing to do. Max von Sydow is at Leah Kynes, a character with, like you said, a ton of depth to it has nothing to do. Like this just, there's just the, the, like, it, it, it's egregious in that way as well, where it's like, he actually recruited these wonderful actors and actresses to be in his movie. And then they just are, they die on the vine. And, they're not all, you know, they're not, some of them do the best they can with what they have, but very few of them give you anything resembling a memorable performance. I would say that perhaps the most memorable performance in the entire movie is Sting, as as uh, you pronounce this for me, Floyd Routha, Floyd Routha? Yeah. 
Fade Routha. Fade Routha. There it is. I forgot how to pronounce that. But and that's mostly. And by the way, you're oh. saying you're saying Harkonnen, and I just want to punch you through this fucking computer screen. <laughs> it's the Harkonnen. I know. When I read the book, I said Harkonnen, 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 Harkonnen. All right, I'm gonna get it right now. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but Sting is playing one of the Harkonnens, and partly because it's Sting, and partly because he has this ridiculous red hair, it stands out. But like, it's just he actually, you know, it's so just that 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 gives him more characterization than many other people in this movie because they're in it for eight minutes they get 10 lines of dialogue even if they're oscar caliber superstars and then they flutter off into the distance like it's just it's just everyone is mismanaged to some extent and it's a it's it's a letdown yeah and like you said there there's two bins to put this in one is who the actual actors were that were cast and then the second is how they were used I think the casting is actually one of the things that works in this movie. There's casting in here that I actually agreed with. Now, how they ended up getting used and the depth that uh, Lynch allowed the characters to have is an argument we're going to have in just a moment, specifically with the Harkonnens. Or maybe we're not going to argue, but just the discussion we're going to have. But I thought Kyle MacLachlan worked well as Muad'Dib. I don't think he worked well as Paul Atreides. Uh, They made Paul Atreides out to be what Kyle McLaughlin was in Blue Velvet, which was this, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, the world is great uh, character that slowly realizes that there's evil and violence in the world by the end of the movie. The book has Paul uh, Trades as a highly trained, highly competent, very uh, knowledgeable of the world, 15-year-old, before he even moves to Arrakis. And so I, I don't think Kyle McLaughlin nailed the Paul Atreides part, but I actually do think he was good as as Paul Muad'Dib, as the, the the converted Fremen who carries an aura of command. And uh, and I think he's the only saving grace of the second half of that movie, and specifically the last scene of that movie. The way he addresses people, the way he speaks, I think he really embodied the character of Paul Muad'Dib quite well, actually. He's probably a little old for the role, but we can forgive that because of his performance in the second half. I thought uh, Gurney Halleck, which was Patrick Stewart, was probably a perfect casting for that character. Gurney Halleck is a hardened warrior, but he's also a musician. He's a poet. Um, and you can imagine Patrick Stewart delivering very hard, tough lines. You can imagine him as a warrior. But you can also, in the next moment, imagine him reading sonnets from Shakespeare. He has that kind of range as an actor, and that character requires that kind of range. Used appropriately... I think that's actually the best casting of the entire movie was uh, Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck. Yeah, they, they, uh, uh, I want to butt in real quick and say that for me, my favorite scene in the book is when Gurney Halleck returns to Paul and Jessica, Paul's mother, and he's been thinking the entire time he's been separated from them that Jessica was the traitor. And there's an incredibly, like, it was one of those rare moments when you're reading a book and you can actually feel tension from reading, which I feel like is very hard to do. It's much easier to depict tension on screen. But I was genuinely, you know, nervous and uncomfortable because I just, it, it just they, they captured just, you know, the, the, the so much time had gone by in the book that you're just you're you really think wow they might kill this very important character because you know that's i could see the gurney halleck being that frustrated and confused and scared and alone and in the movie they make that into a i don't believe jessica's even involved i believe it's a 30 second conversation they run paul and gurney run into each other on the dunes and they become friends again and that's it (laughs) it's it's just they cut the teeth out of one of the finest scenes and something i'm sure patrick stewart would have absolutely nailed had they given that character time and importance enough to 
to matter and to have that scene have relevance. And again, we can talk about that in a little more detail, but it just, it is, it's, it's taking away one of your, maybe he wasn't Patrick Stewart that we know now back in 1984, but still it's just like, that's, I think it's undeniable that that's one of the best things in the book and to just remove it entirely from the movie. It just, it changes. It just, it has ripple effects that change everything around it. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think Patrick Stewart would have nailed that scene and it, uh, but kind of moving on with the, the casting, we might as well have this out right now. I thought this was probably the third biggest failure of the entire movie was the portrayal of the Harkonnens as this comically, and this this is kind of getting into the David Lynch nitpicks I have in general, is that there is typically not a ton of nuance to the bad guys in David, David Lynch's work. They are these caricatures of evil. They are comically bad uh, people. Uh, they're evil to the core. You know, again, I, I just watched Blue Velvet, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, but Dennis Hopper's character in Blue Velvet, there's not an ounce of nuance there. <laughs> he's just this hes just this insane evil person who appears to, like, wake up just wanting to hurt people every day. But obviously that and works so how- much more in, like, a movie about the suburbs than it does about a movie in space, you know? Like, when you're, when you're right. constrained by reality as opposed to being able to fly around and pull, you know, protuberances out of out of people's bodies that make blood shoot out of them. Like it just it just it enables a lot of the things about him that is not that is not great. <laughs> he literally he literally has Vladimir Harkonnen pull a heart plug out of a small boy and bathe in his blood as he dies. Like the Harkonnens in the in the book, they are brutal people and they're they're quite um they can be quite violent. But one of the things that stands out in the book is that Vladimir Harkonnen is not a purely evil character. He's quite pragmatic. He can be brutal, but he views brutality as a tool. He even says such in the, mo- in, in the book. He asks Beast Raban, do you think I enjoy harming people? Do you think I do it for no reason? And he takes it as an insult that anyone would think that he does. He's someone who views violence as a tool. He see- he's someone who views fear and brutality as a tool. But he himself in the book is actually quite brilliant. He's an excellent politician, an excellent tactician. He has some blind spots and hubris that will lead to his downfall in the book. But this portrayal of him and Fade Rauta in the uh, in the movie with Sting being Fade, of these just one-dimensional, purely evil, unthinking characters, is probably my third biggest gripe with this movie in general. Again, the casting was perfectly fine. I think both of those actors could have pulled off uh, both of those roles. Uh, and, and again, it was, when you think about Sting as Fade, he has a line where he looks at uh, when they've captured Thufur Hawat, the Mentat, and he says, all I see is an Atreides I want to kill. Like, it, it, it's just, it's a comically bad line. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it also creates this idea that Fade is just this unthinking a killing machine that just wants to slaughter Atreides. When the truth is, Fade is actually, when you read the book, he is at the very tip of a genetic perfection knife. He has been one of the goals of the Bene Gesserit in their genetic breeding program for thousands of years. He is a nearly genetically perfect specimen of a human. He's smart. The, Vladim- uh, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen recognizes that he's smart and talented and wants to make him his heir. Uh, because he thinks so highly of him, and so the, the casting was fine. The utilization of the actors Sting's in the role of the Harkonnens, so <laughs> he, he's not swole. He's just cut. Yeah, he's good. He's in great shape. 
He toned up for this. Let's see. Some of the other actors, Max von Sydow would have made a perfect Liet Kynes if he had just been giving a little more, given a little more work, something to work with. Uh, Sean Young was fine as a throwaway character in Chani, and in the book, Chani is not a throwaway character. Virginia Madsen was fine as Princess Irulan. She's, she actually she, has a bigger role. She's in it for 45 in the, seconds. Yeah, she actually has a bigger role. The, the character itself has a bigger role in the subsequent novels. The first novel, she's just Paul's key to the throne. Um, Francesca Annis as Lady Jessica was perfectly fine. Um, an interesting one is Jurgen Proshnow as Duke Leto Atreides. <laughs> um, he's just this, I mean, he was in Das Boot. He's a fine actor, I guess, but he's just this kind of random European actor that finds his way into American films every once in a while. Uh, I can't say I was a huge fan of him as Leto Atreides. Leto Atreides is one of the fulcrums that this story turns upon. And he's a very deep, nuanced character that is commanding but can also be cruel. Lady Jessica spends paragraphs describing the the contradictions within Duke Leto, where he could be tender and loving and thoughtful and empathetic, but also be very cold and cruel and calculating. Um, I think he he is the definition of the complex leader that uh, that Frank Herbert does such a good job of illustrating. That these men or women who, who must lead by definition, have to have the ability to be cold and cr- uh, cruel and violent while also having the ability to administer justice. I'm not sure that the casting of Jurgen Proshnow was was the right move <laughs> for this very important and nuanced character. Well, we talk about it touches on two things that we you know, we you know that we talked about a little bit already. One, lack of nuance. Clearly, um, you know, it's the, one of the best parts in the early stages of the book is. Duke Leto basically admitting that he knows he's walking into a trap, but because of, uh, you know, obligations, power related and otherwise, he has no choice but to pursue this opportunity on Arrakis. So, like, it's great to, like, you get a, you get, there's a, for, there's a foreboding, a, like, literally, I mean, that they also, so they, you basically know what's going to happen, but just as you're following along with the actual, the Duke's mindset, he's, he's very aware that something horrible might happen, and yet he's trying to find his way out of it and survive and keep his, also keep his, you know, Love and his child alive. There's so much there. That's not in the movie at all. They're just going on an adventure to Arrakis, you know? <laughs> like, there's no, there's none of that. And then also, the conversation between the Duke and Paul, which is really the scene that requires a writer who understands how human beings talk, and, you know, those, them interacting in some way, like a father and son would. And, and like, and like it's, it's not even, like, it's, it's not even, um... It's not even like, you know, the awkwardness of a father and son trying to emote to each other. It's just the awkwardness of David Lynch not understanding, like, apparently how fathers and sons talk in any way, like, cinematically or otherwise. And so I think that makes Jurgen Prochnow seem much worse because that would have been his, you know, if there was a home run moment for him in the movie, he had a few minutes there to actually, you know, flex some muscles. And, again, stymied for multiple reasons, but stymied nonetheless and sort of comes out looking like a nothing. Maybe the worst part of the fucking movie. It's He's like, really this, gi- this giant German smile on his face going, I'm very proud of you, Paul. Yeah. And and Coop with a giant <laughs> smile on his face going back, I want you to be proud of me, father. 
Like, it, no one talks that and way. Paul, and also, at that point, you were, like, you can't deny that Kamala Auckland's, like, 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old, and you're like, this is not how a grown, like, you know, this is, this is, this is for a 13, 14-year-old. This is not for a, like, grown man who was already in Dune College, you know? It's very, very Are strange. you saying you don't talk to Thomas Semino this way? No, when I was in school, when I was at, becoming a man, if I did it, it would have been when I was a wee boy, and I certainly yeah. Uh, no, I mean, because in, in the in the novel, it's clear that the Duke cares deeply for Paul, but he's also preparing Paul for a very harsh life. He demands that Paul go through intense training that, you know, in a, in a non-fantasy, non-fiction novel world, he would have been prosecuted for the intensity of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'd probably be in jail right now. Uh, but he... He's not there to be Paul's loving father. He's there to prepare Paul for a dukedom uh, that will involve uh, deception, lies, danger. And importantly, they're in the middle of a war of assassins with the Harkonnens. Paul can't afford to be soft. Paul can't afford to have a normal childhood. And I think something that stands out in the beginning of the novel with Duke Leto is that he knows he's a dead man. He knows that going to Arrakis is going to lead to his death. He knows he can't see every trap that has been laid for him by the Harkonnens and, and the Emperor. But he does it anyway in hopes that the trap springs upon him and that Paul will have a better future. You know, the, the mistake he made is thinking that even in death, the Atreides name would live on. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way for Duke. It went a totally, for Duke Leto, it went a totally different way, but... Uh, he, he is a much more nuanced and interesting character in the book than he was made out to be in the movie. So let's talk for a moment about what we thought worked in the movie. Um, so I'll start with a couple things. I thought the visual representation of the Fremen was perfect. That is how I will always see a Fremen when I read the book is the way David Lynch portrayed them in this movie. With the still Notice I say only... Right? Yes, the still suit was perfect. The creation of the the Sikh that they live in was perfect. The the creation of the Chris knife, the way Everett McGill looked as Stilgar, uh, and the way he, sp in all seriousness, I love Big Al, but he he nailed <laughs> Stilgar. The way he spoke, the seriousness in the way he spoke, the the not you know wasting a single syllable. That is how a Fremen would act. And so I thought the visual representation of the Fremen was perfect. Now, the, the actual story of the Fremen in the movie was a complete failure, but the visual representation was perfect. I thought how they depicted Rackus was good. I thought how they de depicted the sandworms was good. Um, and maybe this is where you're going to disagree with me, Steve. I thought half of the soundtrack was good. <laughs> I, uh, which half did you find appealing? Do you, can you split it in two in that way? Yeah, so the like, so the score was written by. There was one track uh, from the score by Brian Eno. Yes, um, and that's like the the foreboding. Uh, da, 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 da. Did you like that? That part I thought was spot on. Yes, because there is something that 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 gives you the feeling that there is something sinister occurring that is about to reveal itself to you, and that is the added, that is the feeling of the entire book. There is an underlying sinister movement throughout the entire book. Um, and that includes when Paul Atreides takes power. There is something sinister there as well. 
Anything Toto did was a total abortion. <laughs> it really dates it too. Like it just, I mean, the eighties were a yeah. very distinctive era for music and especially like, but the, just, but putting it in this sort of movie, like it just definitely does not feel, it feels weird. It feels weird and it doesn't mm-hmm. add a lot to it, but you're right. I think, I think the, you know, theme is very good. I like that as well. So those are the big things I thought worked. What, what other things did you think worked well? I think that the similar, I, th- I think similar in a vein in terms of David Lynch's strengths, I think the special effects are bad. Like I think they also look hopelessly dated and also scream eighties and not enough budget. And just, we, you know, I mean, we, star Wars had way better. Like it's, it wasn't like they couldn't make good effects, but it seems like they bit off more than they could chew, especially with the shields and also with Paul's visions. Like those don't look great, but I will say in, the depiction of folding space. Yeah. Folding space, the, the navigators, but I, but they were, what I will say about them is they were striking and they were, I feel like you can see a lot of David Lynch in those scenes. Like you, Chris and I watched Twin Peaks: The Return together on Showtime, which is also an incredibly polarizing, uh, sometimes great, sometimes horrible piece of entertainment. But you know, there's no denying once we got David Lynch in the late 2010s, like he, once they gave him some money, it looked great and it was scary and it was you know there was there was no denying the visual skill set of a director like David Lynch when you watch Twin Peaks: The Return. I think in Dune, you can see a lot of what he's trying to do like it's definitely the it makes it easier to be watching it now in 2020 and see what he's capable of and then go back to when he had less money and probably less of a grasp of you know how he wanted things to look in a lot of ways but I think there's just a lot there that I thought was interesting and I think like there's a lot that and even you know in the initial scene with the Harkonnens like I really liked the way I liked the terrifyingness and the uncomfortableness and like i thought in, in a if that had been a smaller dose of that and hadn't gotten so even more cartoonish as the movie went on i wouldn't have thought that was so bad they become just like capital b bad guys soon after that and there's again there's no subtlety whatsoever it just it, it, it less becomes less about them shocking you and more just about them fitting into cookie cutter you know bad guy status but i thought there were when they first were introduced i was like these are fucking creepy weird characters and i sort of like where they might go and then they don't go anywhere but i really think there is like you said the sandworms are really good i think the parts that are very that work are the parts where you get to see a filmmaker that know like is getting a sense of how he wants things to look and 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 feel and and the emotions he wants to evoke in his audience down the line i just don't think he had command over it yet i think this was too big of a scope for him to tackle and I, i'm sure he was just getting bombarded on all sides by bullshit and so he couldn't really make it the way it was but i think that's what i like the most like just you can see that and be like oh I, I, there's some david lynch here like this is this guy knows what he's doing it just sucks that he put his name and got tied up in something that really just does not work to his strengths i will push back a little bit on the like the visuals were awful in general <laughs> yeah. and i I know the shields I, were like easy. the shields were embarrassingly bad too. That was a horrible idea. Yeah. Ugh. So actually, let me let me start by complimenting something. Part some of the visuals were excellent. I think the set piece uh, visuals, some of them are great. The costumes for some things were were excellent. I thought the opening scene and the, the throne room with the emperor, were, most of the costumes, with the exception of the Sadukar, were excellent. Yeah, Sadukar sometimes are the, the opposite of the still suits. They look terrible. Yeah. They look terrible. They look like trash bags <laughs> and like it's stupid. 
But I want to, I, I do want to say, like, outside of some of the set piece visuals, some of the quote unquote sci fi visuals or the battle visuals, the special effects areas, I do. I don't necessarily buy the argument that they didn't have the money or the technology back then. So 2001, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, another one of my favorite movies, was made in 1968. The original Alien movie by Ridley Scott was made in 1979. This movie was made in 1984. I don't necessarily buy the argument that the technology didn't exist to create better visuals than what David Lynch ended up creating. Now, whether that's a budget issue, whether that's a studio issue, it's impossible to know. But I don't think, in general, David Lynch's strengths lie in big, special effects-laden, sci-fi um, types of scenes or battle scenes. Like, for example, you know, again, I'll go back to Blue Velvet. There's, there's this shootout during Blue Velvet that's just piss-poor looking. Like, it just, <laughs> it's not a good action set piece. Yes. Uh, it's just not something he's built for. I don't think not something he's particularly good at. No, I think that's super true though. And I think like, I, I, I was going to say he's not an action director by any means. Like what it made me think of is I don't know if you've ever seen, do you ever see glass, the M night Shyamalan movie? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the end of that where the, the, all three of the characters are facing off? And it's supposed to be this very tense moment where they're all sort of fighting. I remember th- watching that, and the only thing I think was, God, M. Night Shyamalan does not know how to direct, like, a fight scene. Like, it just looks weird. Yeah, like, yeah. he does tension real well. This is M. Night. Does tension real well. He does small-scale scenes with people interacting real well. He does misdirection. Like, he has these strengths, but he can't do combat. He can't do fighting. He just, it's just not his thing. And I think David Lynch is that same vein. Like, he can make, he can have two people in a room and make have them talk and you could be like, I don't understand what the fuck these people are talking about, but I'm captivated by the uniqueness of the performances and what they're being told to say. And then if they started, like, having a fist fight, you'd be like, get the fuck out of here. Like, this is garbage. Yeah, exactly. It's just not his thing. And this and this movie d- demands that, and as we noted, like, they if they wanted it to be a Star Wars, you gotta have some fights you know and the fights just the end in particular is just like oh there's just it just does not work at all it's bad no so we've gone over what we think worked uh do you have anything in the what kind of worked category i think we've talked about the casting i would put casting in general under what kind of worked the people the actors that were chosen would have worked the utilization of them did not so i can't give it a full it worked was there anything else you thought kind of worked yeah, I thought the I thought we talked about this when we were watching. I thought the pacing was way better in the first half. I thought they actually it still wasn't great, but I thought they gave things so a little more room to exist. They tried to set everything up. They tried to explain to some extent who these people are and why they matter and why Arrakis matters and why the spice matters. Like I feel like they gave it a little bit of room. And then the second half of the movie, I feel like they were just sprinting to the finish line to try and get everything in there. And any sort of sense of understanding of the plot was gone. And it was just thing, 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 thing. And it was just and then it became then it went from being like a less than good movie that was a little frustrating to more of a straight up bad movie that was you know not very well done yeah okay yeah and i don't have too much more that i would put under the what kind of worked uh, again i'd mentioned the some of the costumes i thought were excellent some of them looked horrible some of the set pieces were good some of them were not so i would say overall the casting and the the costumes and set pieces kind of worked. we've gone into a lot of things that we said didn't work that really tanked this movie i'm going to add one last uh, part of this 
Uh, well, maybe two. One of them is uh, the lack of political intrigue. As somebody who's just watched the movie and read the book for the first time, if you had not read the book, would you have had any notion whatsoever as to what the larger political intrigue of the movie was? No, absolutely not. I wouldn't like the stuff you described in the beginning, like the Chome Corporation and all that stuff. Like, I would never, no, I would pay it no regard because I'd be like, this is just gibberish, and they're not going into it. So why am I even <laughs> going to bother to figure this out? I don't. I wouldn't have understood or cared about any of it. I would. I would have written it off as easily as the movie did. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I think there are some things that are overplotted. Like, for example, the new Star Wars uh, trilogy was overplotted. They they would make up for a lack of a good story by just adding more story to it. Um, I don't think some of the things that were left out of this movie can be put in that category. Uh, who the Chom group was, who the Bene Gesserit were, who the Spacing Guild were, these are foundations of the story. These are not little things that were added on uh, to make it seem like the, the the plot was more complex than it actually was. These are things that set up the entire narrative that inform uh, all of the actions of the main characters in the narrative. And so unfortunately, I think one of the things I love about the book is the really honest depiction of what politics looks like. We see politics through the lens of elections and kind of the sensationalized way we look at it through the media with our current president. It's almost a show. But in reality, and the way the book depicts this, and remember, this was written in the 1960s during uh, the, the growing threat of the Cold War, where politics were literally saving the planet from nuclear destruction. Politics are, at the end of the day, the prevention of humans from killing one another. They make what could be big wars into smaller wars. And that's something that I think a writer of his generation appreciated and something he as an author uh conveyed very, very well in the actual novel of Doom was the art that goes into politics, the nuance that goes into politics, the differences in a single word in a sentence that could mean war or peace. I think he, of mo probably better than most any other author I've read, with the exception of maybe the Foundation series, uh, gets that across. And so having the lack of political intrigue and the, the the story of the art of politics in this movie was, again, something that really, really didn't do well. Well, that, I think it's a really good transition to talk a little bit about the upcoming Dune movie as well, because I think that, that, that we, we touched on this before, I think the idea of splitting this movie, the the splitting the first Dune book into two is just makes so much more sense because I think that will allow them time to tell the story in that way. I would imagine that I don't I mean, We don't know how the movie's going to turn out. Dennis Villeneuve, I think he's a very good director. He's not perfect. And so this, this certainly could, this, this could be unadaptable. You know, it's not, it's, there's, there's a solid chance that we'll see this movie, uh, you know, the two, especially as, even in the two part version and we'll find it underwhelming. But I think it's just a very good idea to stop at the point, which I believe is from what I've read about it is when Paul meets the Fremen that's basically when we're going to call it a day at some point in that thing and then the second movie is going to be about the 
sort of, you know, uh, swaying of the Fremen to his side, becoming the messiah of, of Arrakis of Dune, and then everything that comes after that. I just think that is a very logical place to take it, and it makes me very, it, it gives me optimism for this movie, because they're making a smart choice right out of the bat, of realizing this is just too much for even a two and a half hour movie. Like, you could shove all that stuff you talked about in there, doesn't mean you're going to do it right, doesn't mean the audience is going to understand it, doesn't mean it's going to sink in, like, it makes a lot more sense to split it up into two, and hopefully put some of that intrigue in there and make it somewhat clear that this is a bigger story than just a guy on a planet becoming a hero or your hero in quotes yeah i agree with you it's planned as two movies and i think i think i'm hoping actually uh that the story is the first movie being the story of paul atreides and the second movie being the story of paul muadib uh who if you read the book are very distinct characters though they're obviously the same human being my hope I'm actually a huge fan of this director. Um, Sicario, the first Sicario, he didn't direct the second. The first Sicario is one of my favorite movies uh, to be done in the last decade. Um, what I'm hoping for is the visuals of Blade Runner 2049. And I'm I'm hoping for the feel and the type of soundtrack and the, the foreboding nature uh, of Sicario. That's a great comparison too, because Sicario is about you know the is a heavily action oriented movie, but you also get a very strong sense of the broader conflict going on between the United States and Mexico and gangs and what's what you know and and you and United States intelligence agencies and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Like there, there's a lot of that that seeps in, and not in a very preachy sort of way. You just like the movie happens, and you sort of pick up as you go, sort of who's doing things and why they're doing it, and who they're betrothed to, and that whole mindset. Yeah, and I'm going to top off that uh, description with this also, like, you know, so we have Sicario, we have Blade Runner 2049, which didn't, I don't think did great in the box office, but I was actually a huge fan of. I love the pacing of it. I love the feel of it. I love the visuals of it, the way it was shot. But the one, uh, the, the movie of his that I think is best preparing him for this movie is actually Arrival. And I say that because Arrival is all about the getting granular with something that could be uh, almost supernatural to the viewer, which is the language that develops throughout the, the movie of Arrival. Dune, as I mentioned earlier, is all about things seeming to be supernatural that later as you read the, the pages of the book are broken down into their scientific bases and scientific parts. And so the movie Arrival... I walked away, or I walked into that movie, and in the beginning, the first half of this movie, you think it's this awe-inspiring uh, first contact with an alien race that they have this way of communicating that must be beyond us, and it spends the entire movie breaking down what should have been a, a supernatural feeling and showing us that, in fact, this language is nothing more than a language of something that speaks the languages of science with a greater fluency than we can. And I think, you know, to, to piggyback off that idea, that in a nutshell is how uh, Frank Herbert showed uh, what the supernatural was in Dune. The supernatural is not a god. The supernatural is not something that is above human comprehension. A deity or a god or something that seems more powerful that simply could be an entity that speaks the languages of mathematics, biology, chemistry, physics, with a greater fluency than another being. And I thought Arrival 
got that message across. And so I do have faith based on uh, how he executed Arrival that he's going to get that message of the novel of Dune across in his films. I think that's very true. And I think just the timing of these movies, you know, of making another Dune movie in 2020 is going to be so much more advantageous because, you know, even if they pretended in 1984, like they weren't trying to make another Star Wars, like, of course they're trying to make another Star Wars. Like, duh, like the biggest thing in the world, like Star Wars changed filmmaking forever, you know, like, and it's, and David Lynch was considered a director of Turn of the Jedi. Like clearly everyone was thinking, how can we do more of this? You know, I think it was a very like early stage of Hollywood being like, we need, uh, we need franchises, we need effects, we need stories that are larger than life. Whereas in 2020, certainly people want franchises, they want effects, but they also, I think there's more room for subtlety now, as weird as it sounds. Like, I just don't think you have to be as carbon copy-y. I think, like, I think people are more willing to accept a science fiction story that is has some detail to it and had like how you said has some political elements to it and tries to tell it from a more of a larger perspective than just the solo person like tries to blend both tries to blend a hero story with a political story with tension with you know with family stuff like i think there's just i think there's room for that and so i think that makes me optimistic as well just that i doubt that the you know the the producers behind villain wave are up his ass telling him he needs to you know make more put more boobs in it or put more laser battles like i just don't think that's really how it works anymore like i think they just want him to make a real good big old movie that makes 500 million dollars but i think there's more of an understanding now that like you can do that without you know you, you certainly want some boobs you certainly want some battles but those don't have to be the crux of everything as long as you got him in there and you put a good movie around him you make the critics happy you make the audiences happy i think that's i think that's more of an idea that we accept these days than we did in 1984 well, I'm hoping they also, and I'm sure they have, they saw the example of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is an extraordinarily complex uh, five or six novel series that HBO was able to make into a smash hit uh, because of the internet. Basically, if you have questions about Dune in 1984, there's not very many places you can <laughs> go no to get quick answers to those questions. Yeah, you have no <laughs> podcast. But how many people did you know, Steve, that as you're watching, um, you know, the Game of Thrones series over seven or eight seasons, how many people went to the Internet and said, who the hell are the Lannisters? Oh, I forget this character. I forget that character. The Internet and blogs and podcasts allow us to engage with complex material in a way that they maybe weren't able to engage in in the 80s. Uh, and so I'm hoping that, as you said, that gives uh, the director a license to make this more complex, more nuanced, because we're going to trust our audience to have the resources to understand the material outside of the movie theater. Yep. If you want to know about Caladan, if you want to know about Arrakis, if you want to know about Leah Kine's father, you can read the book or Google it. But it, it, hopefully they can hint it and talk about it in the movie and leave those sort of open-ended elements, which aren't actually open-ended. It's just the, the, and some, some, when a good director or a good writer tells the story that way, it just makes you excited to learn more, you know? Like, you're just like, wow, like, I don't know what that means. And the movie didn't tell me, but I just, it makes the world feel larger by comparison. It makes me realize there's a history here and these people have lived before and their ancestors have lived before. And like, I, I and some people will want to learn more. And like, that's great. That You're totally right. That builds enthusiasm. That builds like fanatics who love that kind of stuff. And I think Dune is such a rich, the, the first book alone is rich enough. I couldn't imagine what comes after it. And even just the opportunity to hint it more 
more and can give us little tidbits, I think is going to, hopefully if it goes well, really fire up people and make this into something special. Let's go through the cast real quick, and uh, let's just give it a quick yes or no. So do we like uh, Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides? I think it's – I couldn't imagine anybody better off the top, you know, without seeing it, obviously, but that sounds perfect. It is perfect. And where you should watch him before watching this is uh, the Netflix movie The King, I think it's called. That movie shows that he has the command – or the commanding presence that I thought he did not have uh, to play Paul Atreides and Paul Mordeep. Rebecca Ferguson from, I believe, the Mission Impossible series and as Dr. Lady Sleep. Jessica. Have you seen Dr. Sleep? Yes, I love she's, Dr. Sleep. She's very good in Dr. Sleep. She's great. Yeah. Um, good. I'm, I'm pretty okay with that. I, I, I like her a lot. I'm very. There's not a lot of women in this. But I'm curious to see how, uh, how she does with it. She seems great. I like it. No, super okay with it. In fact, it's her Dr. Sleep performance that lets me know she's going to do great because there is something sinister about the Bene Gesserit yep. and she she shows that she can play that well. Zendaya as Chani. Yeah, I like Zendaya a lot. I'm not, I'm, I think she's done a ton of serious stuff yet, but you know, I think that I think there's a lot of intrigue there as well. I think she's hot and uh, you know, like hot meaning popular and intriguing, and I think she'd be a good fit. I'm into it. I am cautiously optimistic. Wouldn't say I'm super into that one. Um, Duncan Idaho being played by Jason Momoa. Yes, I love. We we already said Jason. You know, Duncan Idaho dies in this book. Jason Momoa is. Uh, I think it, I love. I love. It's just. It's just gonna. Duncan Idaho is gonna feel important just because Jason Momoa is gonna show up for 20 minutes and rock it and then die. Like it's just. It's gonna make. It's gonna give that character a weight that he certainly did not have at all in the '84 version. So I'm a little stuck on this one. Oh, wow! Uh, Jason Momoa is super hot, super handsome. He's physically the, he's Aquaman. Physically fits the description, I think, well of who Duncan Idaho would be. I'm not convinced Jason Momoa is a good actor. Um, I think he's a charismatic <laughs> actor. You don't like not what he says, my a, man. He's so good at saying my yeah. man. I can't say he delivers lines well. Um, from the original novel, Dune, Duncan is not a huge character in the, in the original novel. He becomes much, much bigger in subsequent novels, even though he dies in the first one. So if they keep his presence in this one as limited as it is in the original Dune, I think he'll be fine. Um, Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto Atreides. Love it. Great. Fantastic. This one I'm also, I love Oscar Isaac. Um, the one thing I was worried about is, as I mentioned earlier, Duke Leto in the book, you can tell he is a man who is spread thin. He knows his death is imminent, I think, and he is desperate. I'm hoping there's a, li- a little bit more fatigue in Oscar Isaac than he normally shows in his characters. I always thought Viggo Mortensen was the perfect actor to play Duke Leto Atreides, but I love Oscar Isaac. I have huge faith in him. I think he's going to do just fine. I think if he, if he, if he gives him a performance more long, have you seen A Most Violent Year? Not yet. No. Uh, if you give something a more lines of a, a most violent year, or also a show me a hero, there was a lot of desperation to that character as well. Like by the end, at least, like I think it was a tale of two characters. By the end, he was pretty worn out. Like I think we get second half show me a hero, Oscar Isaac. I think that'll be very appropriate. Still a very competent man, but clearly someone who's stretched beyond you know what he can handle. Uh, we can uh, we can do a separate podcast on Show Me a Hero. I would not say he was competent. Uh, I think he stumbled ass first into some fame and then didn't know what to do sure, with it. Sure, fine. We can talk anyway, about that. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> uh, let's see. Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck. Um, I love Josh Brolin. I don't... 
this one is a little weird. I feel like it's a different Gurney Halleck. Like like you said, I did like Patrick Stewart a lot. I uh, Josh Brolin can certainly summon that gravitas, but I, I think of him more as you know a little a little you know I guess uh, I guess I don't know. I'm I'm not as so I'm, I'm sure it'll be good because Josh Brolin is pretty good and everything, but it's not exactly the route I would go. I agree with you. I I think this is going to turn into the tough guy Gurney Halleck. Gurney Halleck is what the definition of the warrior poet. Yeah, I, I thought if you Patrick's... already have Momoa, if you have Momoa, like the biggest, handsomest man you could possibly get, then I think you should take the other route with Gurney Halleck and, and focus on the bard element, you know, and not so much on the tough guy. Yeah, Gurney Halleck, again, Patrick Stewart was the best casting that Gurney Halleck could have possibly been. Unfortunately, I just don't think this is a great role for Josh Brolin. Um, but we'll just see how he does. Dave Batista as Beast Raban. So I'm the thing that intrigues me most about Batista in this is they don't mention Fade Ralpha in this cast at all. And maybe that's because it's part one and he'll be part of part two. But I'm curious to see if they give Batista more to do and make Raban more of like, you know, less of a idiot and monster and more of a like actual, you know, character with a little more depth to him, or if they're just saving Fade Ratha for part two. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I like Batista a ton. Uh, you know, as uh, if you listen to my other podcast, you'll, we, we, we talk Dave Batista constantly. I think I'm intrigued to see where this, this is a, I think this could work really well, regardless of which way they go with Rabon, but I'm, I'm going to wait and see to see if this is going to be amazing or if this is going to be just Batista being big and swole and then building towards a more, uh, a more polished Harkonnen in part two. Yeah, I'm, I'm suspect. I'm, again, cautiously optimistic on this one. We'll just, we'll see. Uh, here's a good one. Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. I mean, he's, he's, he, I like Stellan Skarsgård. I think he's fine. I, I, I'm, I, I don't, uh, I feel like that's going to be pretty standard fare. It'll be fine. I just don't think it's going to, you know, prove me wrong, but I'm not sure if that's going to really excite me in any way. If we can get Stellan Skarsgård from the girl with the dragon tattoo, I think it's a great. I think it's a great casting. Yeah. I actually think he can nail this role. That's 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 what I was thinking as well. That's that I'm sure that's what we're all sort of expecting and what he'll probably end up channeling. So, um, maybe my second favorite after Timothy Chalamet, Javier, Javier Bardem as Stilgar. Love it. Great. Really great, and makes me feel really good about the second part because. You know, we're going to get a hint of Bardem in the first one, and then he's going to be presumably the second lead in the second one. And, like, it's going to be great to see it. You know, I, I think that's going to be one that's really exciting for people who don't know the story and go into Dune Blind, and all of a sudden at the end they're going to get some Bardem and go, whoa, Bardem, like, man, Oscar winner, legend. And then seeing where it goes, you know, in part two, I think it's I, – I love that. Yeah, honestly – the character of Stilgar is if you took Anton Shigur and gave him a soul, mm. that that is who Stilgar is. So I think this is perfect. Uh, I, I think he's going to nail this. So I think we're both pretty pretty high on this casting. Uh, Wellington UA is Chen Chang, no idea. <laughs> we had kinds of Sharon Duncan Brewster, no idea. So we'll we'll just have to see about them. Yeah. But the the rest of the top build cast I think is is pretty much spot on with a couple hopeful you know a couple. Uh, 
cautiously optimistic cast. Everybody's good. Like, everyone is either a genuinely amazing actor or actress or is just, like, a commanding presence that will add some value, you know? So, and with a guy like Denis Villeneuve, who is a great director, I'm sure he will find a place for all these people. Like, I'm not worried about him handling everybody's load and getting everyone on the same page. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, and, and again, the thing that excites me in a lot of ways is it's just clear they're taking this very seriously. You know, a cast like this... That I that makes me feel good because it tells me there's a lot of money behind it and a lot of enthusiasm and it tells me they all love this director and they like the script. You know, I don't think they sign off for this movie for an, an ensemble type role like this unless they really like what they're getting into. You know, like I feel like you don't get you don't get Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck, who's like the sixth main character, unless he feels like he's gonna have something to really sink his teeth into. Yeah, no, I agree. So I, I'm I'm really excited about the 2020 version. I love the director. I pretty much love every cast, uh, every <laughs> casting choice, and so I think it's going to be excellent. Yep, and again, if the world restarts by then, which we hope it will be by December, we will be back and talking Dune 2020, so that's going to be really exciting. That was part of the allure of doing this one, is we could talk 84 in April, and we can talk 2020 in December. It's going to be a real treat. Chris, I can't wait for you to lecture all of us and me and everyone on what it did right, on what it did wrong. We'll do another 90-minute podcast about it. Hey, didn't want to shortchange Dune in a podcast just like we didn't want uh, David Lynch to shortchange it in a movie. Oh, absolutely not. It, it demands a lot of conversation. You're an expert on the subject, and you enlightened me throughout the reading and the watching, and I, I loved having you on. We loved having you on to enlighten us all to what's going on in Dune. So thank you, Chris, for joining us. It's my pleasure. When you're down to talk Foundation series, you let me know. <laughs> we will call you. We will call you back in that regard. And thank you all so much for listening. As always, you can find all of our archives on InRealDeep.com. You can subscribe to us everywhere podcasts are. Just search for the In Real Deep podcasts. Rate and review if you get a chance as well. We are there. We love to have that. And we will keep putting out great audio content for you throughout this quarantine and beyond. And, uh, one last thing, if anybody has any uh, ability to donate uh, personal protective equipment to any medical personnel out there, uh, we have a website. It's medsupply at dhs.lacounty.gov. Please donate face masks, gloves, uh, eye shields, anything like that. That's medsupply at dhs.lacounty.gov. Very timely to put that at the end of a 90-minute podcast. I'm sure, I'm sure everybody got to the end. It's the it's... least important part. <laughs> Chris, you should I know. I want people to hear about my hot takes on the Harkonnens before the PPE donations. <laughs> Chris is a healthcare professional. He is a doctor. He's doing great work out there. And, Chris, we actually call... – I don't know if you heard this already. We called you out in our most recent episode, the Hateful Eight episode, and thanked you for all of your service and all your great work as a friend of the podcast. So we're going to thank you oh, again, boy. Andrew and I right here. You're a uh, – you're a, you're a wonderful man. You're doing great stuff, and we really appreciate it. So thank you for everything. My pleasure. And we love having you on Talking Dune. And like we said, he will be back in December and probably in between too because he's a hero, and if he wants to talk about shit, I'm going to let him do it. So <laughs> that's the new rule. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Adios.